So welcome everybody to our Women in Chemicals webinar today, Multinationals and China Navigating Turbulence. I will quickly introduce you to our uh, sponsor um, and our speaker, and then I will hand it over to Arthur Krober to uh, begin his presentation. We will have Q&A at the end of the discussion. Uh, so we will have an option to put your questions in the chat or um, raise your hand and we will allow you to unmute and speak. Um, so without further ado, I will introduce our sponsor, um, Mission Chemical. So Mission Chemical is one of my favorite up and coming specialty chemical distributors. I'm so excited that they're partnering with WIC today. Mission Chemical is a specialty chemical distributor based in Houston, Texas. Mission makes their customers' lives easier by delivering chemical supply chain solutions quickly. Mission prides themselves on being the chosen specialty chemical distribution partner for both small specialty chemical companies and large multinational chemical manufacturers and refineries. Their consultative sales approach, A-plus talent, including uh, Women in Chemicals' own Caroline Thomas, and expansive manufacturing, storage, and laboratory assets have allowed Mission Chemical to become one of the fastest growing chemical companies in North America for the past three years. Visit www.missionchem.com to check them out. Our speaker today is Arthur Krober. Arthur R. Krober is a partner and head of research at Gavin Call, a Hong Kong-based economic research firm, and founder of its China-focused Gavin Call Dragonomics Research Service. Before establishing Dragonomics in 20, 2002, he spent 15 years as a financial and economic journalist in China and South Asia. He is an adjunct professor of economics at the NYU Stern School of Business, a senior non-resident fellow of the Brookings Xinhua Center in Beijing, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. His book, China's Economy, What Everyone Needs to Know, is published by Oxford University Press. So without further ado, I hand it over to you, Arthur. Okay, well, thanks very much, Amelia and Kylie. I'm uh, very pleased to have this opportunity to chat with you folks today. Um, so um, my Specialty, as uh, Amelia mentioned, is the macroeconomy of China and all of its interactions with the rest of the world. Um, and as she mentioned, I've spent about 25 years of my life uh, living in Asia, most of that in China and within China, most of that in Beijing. Uh, for the last six or seven years, uh, I've been splitting my time between uh, China and the US uh, New York, uh, and that's where I got to know Amelia because she was in my class at the NYU Business School um, earlier this year. So I'm um, really happy um, to share some perspectives with you on what's going on with China. Um, I should, you know, be upfront that I'm not obviously a, an expert in the chemicals industry. I do talk to people uh, in that industry from time to time as part of my work and uh, trying to understand the, the bigger picture. And I have a, you know, a few observations that I could make of a somewhat more granular nature on the specific industry in China and the, the challenges it faces and you know some of the global interactions. So if you want to get into that in q and I'm happy to do that. Um, what I thought I would do today, though, um, for the first part, is lay out 
kind of a big picture story about how China is evolving both economically and geopolitically. Um, and since Amelia and I started talking about this, we've had the war in Ukraine and um, that has, I, I think, created some additional complications. Um, so I will talk a little bit initially, essentially about the geopolitical framework for China and the rest of the world. And then I'll make some comments about what we see going on in the economy in China, both in the immediate runs of the next six to 12 months and looking a little bit farther out. And then I'll conclude with some fairly general comments about how all of these things affect the calculations of multinationals that are heavily committed to China, either as a production base or as a market or, or both. Uh, and hopefully that will give you some food for thought and uh, allow us to have uh, an interesting discussion uh, after that. So I do have some slides to share. And by the way, Amelia, if you want, if anyone wants these, um, uh, I'm happy to share them so I can email those to you afterwards. Um, okay. Um, so as I mentioned, I mean, I, I think the topics that we, I want to touch on are number one, um, how the equation has been changed by the Ukraine crisis, because that I think actually is quite central and it has changed the global chessboard in, in pretty significant ways permanently. So we kind of have to start there. Um, then I'll back up a little bit and, and talk about the problems that China is having in its relationship with the United States specifically then I'll deal with the macroeconomic issues. And finally, uh, you know, what, what this all means if you're sitting in a, an AMNC trying to figure out what to do, right? Um, so starting with this um, issue of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, it's rather striking that uh, just a few weeks before um, the invasion started, uh, President Putin was in Beijing for the beginning of the uh, Winter Olympics. Um, and after he, he met with Xi, they put out a very, very um, flowery statement on February 4th, saying Russia and China have a friendship without limits. There are no forbidden zones. This is the greatest thing ever. Um, and some of that language, I think you have to put down to um, if you will, Chinese hospitality. This is an important global leader. He came to the Olympics when a lot of other global leaders were, were not coming. Um, and so they wanted to give him a good welcome and send him home with a, you know, a nice statement. So some of it we have to take with a little bit of grain of salt. But um, even if you strip that away, it's very clear, um, both as a result of this meeting, and if you look back at how China and Russia have been looking at each other for the last decade, that they've gotten a lot closer. Xi and Putin have met 38 times in the last decade, which is more meetings than she has had with any other global leader. And I think it's more meetings than any two global leaders have had, period, in the last decade. So it's a very close personal relationship, but it's also founded on strategic um, uh, beliefs. Uh, and I've highlighted these here. Um, China, over the last few years, the leadership in China, not just Xi, but the sort of elite around him, have come to the conclusion, I think not unreasonably, uh, that the United States is not gonna tolerate China as a rival and is now embarked on a containment strategy that whose aim is to constrict 
China's economic development and its and its room to maneuver. Um, so that's their first belief. Their second belief, uh, which I don't agree with, is that the United States is in long-term decline. So the U.S. is hostile, but the U.S. is also declining. So therefore, if if you believe those things, as Xi Jinping evidently does, then clearly it's in your interest to try and create relationships that will help you sort of forge a a global order that gives China more room to maneuver and takes advantage of this supposed U.S. weakness. And that, I think, is pretty clearly what has been on their minds uh, in terms of the relationship with Russia. These are two authoritarian regimes that you know, don't agree with the U.S. emphasis on, on democracy, uh, who want their regimes to be taken as legitimate uh, globally, and both of whom feel constricted by you know, various kinds of, of U.S. actions. And so they want to work together to, to push back. Um, <clears throat> now, I don't think this means that when Putin came to Beijing, he laid it on the line and said, look, I'm going to move into Ukraine and try and change the government there in three weeks. I think all the evidence suggests that he was pretty cagey about what he was going to do there. So I think the Chinese were unpleasantly surprised, first of all, by the aggressiveness of what he was trying to do. And then they were also really unpleasantly surprised by the strength and the comprehensiveness of the sanctions that the US, Europe, and a few Asian countries uh, put on Russia. So they're in kind of a tricky spot right now because they need to keep supporting Russia in some sense, even if it's only rhetorical. Um, but they don't want to put themselves in a position where they're going to be subject to secondary sanctions because the U.S. says, oh, you're giving, you know, direct aid to Russia. And so we're going to start, you know, prohibiting your banks uh, from transacting in international financial networks or, or whatever. So they need to support Russia on the one hand, but in a way that does not trigger um, additional sanctions by the U.S. And so far, I, I know they've been walking that tightrope, I think, pretty successfully. Um, I think any hope that um, China would sort of give up on the Russian relationship because of this you know, bad situation that Russia has created in Ukraine, very unlikely, because China stands to benefit under a wide range of scenarios. If, if Russia is successful, then that's kind of chips away at the, at the US-led global order, kind of expands the, the, the prestige and the power of the China-Russia you know, alignment. Uh, but if Russia fails or gets, uh, you know, stuck in a quagmire, it, it, that doesn't really hurt China that much because, first of all, it hasn't, you know, concretely given Russia that much. But also, Russia is essentially a resource country. Uh, China would like to buy more resources uh, from Russia, whether it's oil or gas or various kinds of minerals, but they want to do so on good terms. So the weaker a Russia is in terms of its negotiating position, you know, the better off China is, at least from this narrow sense of, you know, having a resource um, supplier at, at reasonable cost. Um, I think the other calculation that the Chinese have is that <clears throat> while the U.S., you know, clearly has identified China and Russia as kind of acting together in some sense and has kind of threatened China that, well, we might put sanctions on you if you do this or that vis-a-vis -vis Russia. I think they also calculate that the stakes are very different. 
So if you look at Russia, for example, there's a, some very interesting research that's been done by Jeff Sonnenfeld, uh, Jeff Sonnenfeld over at the Yale School of Management. He's looked at about 800 major companies, um, international companies that have operations in Russia. And I think about 300 uh, have either exited the market entirely or have suspended their operations or, or really scaled things back, right? Uh, so not only do you have government sanctions in Russia, but you also have companies you know, moving with their feet. And companies are not gonna do that with China because China is much too big a market and, and way more important for other reasons. So I think the Chinese also calculate that um, it's harder for the US to put pressure on China for this reason or any other reason, because the stakes for US and European and other businesses in China are just so much larger. And I think they're right about that. So the final point I'll make on this is that you will often read in the financial press, <clears throat> oh, because there are these sanctions and, and Russia can't transact in US dollars anymore and so forth, that this creates an incentive for you know, China to build an alternative payment system around the renminbi or something like that, right? And so there are these speculative pieces about um, alternatives to the dollar payment system. And I just, I, I really don't take these very seriously. Um, the incentives to create a way to work around the dollar payment system have definitely grown, but the ability to actually build that system has not grown. And I, I won't go into the, the details about that, uh, but I think among all of the risks that uh, we face from this situation, that is one that we, that we really should not worry about too much. I think the one that we do need to worry about is that clearly uh, Russia's, uh, this whole situation it has put a lot of strain on <clears throat> the markets that Russia supplies, and these are notably energy and grain. Uh, but I think for this audience, you know, energy is the key thing. Um, so we fundamentally have a lot of inflationary pressure built into the core energy system of the world. And I don't think it's going to go go away any anytime soon. Um, so regardless of how the China-Russia alignment works out, um, I think we have a very changed global macroeconomic picture um, with a lot more built-in structural inflationary pressure than we had six months ago, and a lot more of that concentrated in the, uh, in the energy sector. Um, so um, this is sort of an illustration, you know, one of the themes, you know, that will come out from my remarks here is interdependence. There's a lot of interdependence between China and in a lot of other countries. Um, and this just illustrates the fact that although China might not like the sanctions that uh, the US and its allies are putting on Russia, they kind of have to go along with them because the cost of not going along with them and, and flouting the sanctions is you know, maybe losing access to US or European or, or other markets. And as you can see here, China's exports, China doesn't really export that much to Russia. It's not a very important trading relationship uh, to them in aggregate. Um, but they export a ton to the United States and its major allies. And I've highlighted here all of the countries that have joined the US in putting sanctions on Russia. So if you look at China's export profile, um, they're clearly very dependent on the markets of the US and the allies. And so that makes it very difficult for China to you know, be very active in its support of Russia. So they have to kind of walk this tightrope. Okay, um, let me skip over now to uh, the US-China relationship, because that 
I think has, if we look over the last five years, that has been a major uh, thorn in the side for uh, international companies, particularly American companies operating in China. Um, <clears throat> and I've drawn a little map here that shows, you know, the interest groups that try to have an, uh, an impact on, on China policy in the United States, the main political actors, and what I think the outcomes are here. And um, it's a little bit complicated, but I essentially want to make two big points. Point one is Trump um, had a very important achievement, which was that he changed the fundamental narrative in the United States about the relationship with China. And the old narrative was constructive engagement. Yeah, we have problems with China, but fundamentally, uh, it's good for the United States if China grows and if its rise is peaceful, and maybe with more you know, economic engagement, we can um, create pressure for the society to become more open, right? Not necessarily democratic, but a more open pluralistic society that is invested in making the global economic system work better, right? That was essentially the idea behind constructive engagement. Trump basically said, nope, it's all about strategic competition. It is basically zero sum. We don't really have a strong interest in China becoming uh, stronger than it is. And so we're going to compete very hard against them. And what's interesting is that Biden came in and basically said, uh, yes, I agree with that. Um, so we've seen essentially no change in US policy uh, towards China from Trump to Biden, which means this is now a bipartisan consensus. And if you look at what's going on in Congress, there's a tremendous amount of pressure to create more legislation that would make it more difficult for capital and technology to flow from the United States to China. <clears throat> and a lot of this legislation is not gonna you know, bear fruit, but some of it may. Um, so we have a bipartisan consensus in the US that's basically pretty hostile to China. Um, and that obviously creates a, um, a problem for US businesses that are trying to operate in China. Uh, because they're viewed in Washington as you know doing a bad thing by by operating in China. Um, so there's this very strong sort of political or security push to reduce the economic engagement between the US and China. And this comes under the rubric of what people sometimes call decoupling. So the idea is that the econ two economies very tightly coupled together, and now we want to decouple them. And you know, obviously it's not a binary. Um, it's not you're either coupled or you're decoupled. It's sort of like you're coupled in a hundred ways and then maybe 17 of them, you can kind of pull things apart, but the other 83 stay the same, something like that, right? And that's, I think what the Biden administration is now trying to figure out is like, where can we really pull the two economies apart? And what's the cost of doing that? Uh, and a lot of that has to do with investment domestically. And I, the main action in Congress right now is a couple of bills that passed in the House and the Senate last year, essentially to make massive investments in key industries in the United States, notably semiconductors, but a whole lot of other things, uh, you know, particularly in the, in the clean energy space. Um, and so the idea is if we can't get China to change in the way that we want, then maybe we just have to domestic invest more domestically to make the US to pull some multinational investment back from China into the United States. And we can talk about that more in the Q&A if you want. 
you know, in some cases this may work, and I think in a lot of other cases it, it won't work. Um, so there's a big push and pull between the political security mandate, which is to pull China and the U.S. apart, and the business interests, which are, you know, look at China and say, look, this is really important for a lot of reasons, which I'll get into, and we can't just walk away from it. <clears throat> uh, and this is just one illustration of the importance of the China market. And what the two things to pay attention to here are the blue line and the black line. The blue line at the top is the sales that American firms subsidiaries in China make within China. So these are domestic sales in China of US owned firms. firms. And you can see for the latest year we have data, it was about $600 billion. The black line is what's exported from the US to China and that's under $200 billion. And you can see the gap between the two has been widening. So US companies make an enormous money amount of money off of the China market and they do it mostly by producing in China for the China market. It's not through exports, right? Which was, I think, one of the fundamental problems with the, the Trump trade strategy was they kind of didn't understand the exact the, the, the reality of the relationship uh, between the two economies, which is that, yeah, trade was part of it, but a much bigger part of it was the fact that U.S. companies and other international companies operate within China and they have enormous operations there that are not really trade dependent. Um, the other, so the interests are very large. And then if you look at, <clears throat> if you ask U.S. companies, are you planning to move operations out of China because of the trade war, political pressure, whatever, basically, you know, 85 to 90 percent of them say no. We are not planning to do that. And this has been very consistent over time, even with the, the, the trade war. So multinational investment in China is very large. Uh, I'll get into the reasons why later. And it's very sticky. And we, we see some changes in that trend uh, just in the last year or so, but not a lot. Um, so just to conclude this portion, um, in terms of US policy towards China that could have create problems <clears throat> for US companies that are trying to operate in China, I think there are two things that you want to pay attention to. One is um, the, as I mentioned, there are these bills, which if they're reconciled and passed this year would potentially create a lot of incentives for multinationals to move some investment back to the United States. So that's kind of a positive incentive. And that's, uh, you know, I think interesting to look at. The thing that's more worrying is what I've highlighted in bold here is I think it's quite likely that in the next couple of years, we will get a mechanism uh, whereby the U.S. government will have the right to vet any international investment that's made by multinational firms. So if you're a multinational and you want to build a factory in you know, country X, there will be an agency of the US government that's, that will review that transaction and say, yes, you can build that factory or no, you can't because that's against national security. It's very clear that that agency, most of its work would, would relate to China and its mandate would be to limit uh, the ability of US firms to to invest more uh, in China. Um, I think it's just a matter of time before we get that. Uh, and then the question is exactly how is it implemented? But that's, you know, I think something that, that you really need to think about quite carefully. Um, probably more likely under Republican Congress, uh, which presumably we'll get at the end of this year. Um, but I think, you know, even if we don't get it this year or next year, we'll, we'll probably get it the year after.
Okay, so that's the big picture, uh, sort of globally and in China's geopolitical relationships. Let me now go into China and talk a little bit about the challenges. And I've highlighted four economic challenges. Two are basically short-term and two are, are more long-term. Um, and the short-term, I think, which what everyone is dealing with right now is that we've had an enormous increase since the beginning of March in the number of cities that are in lockdown. Shanghai obviously is the big problem because it's such an important industrial hub. Um, and this has created you know, a lot of havoc. It's, it's depressed consumer activity, and it has also had really significant negative impacts on supply chains, um, which is, was not really the case for the previous two years of China's you know, sort of spot lockdowns. Downs. They were bad for consumer activity, but most of the supply activities in China were not really affected by COVID restrictions. Um, that, that has changed. Now, the good news here is that if we look over the country as a whole, uh, my team has created this index that you can see of, you know, what essentially what proportion of GDP is affected by COVID lockdowns. And you can see this peaked in the middle of April and it's come down a lot. So outside of Shanghai, the number of cities, and you can see this in blue, that have some kind of COVID restrictions or um, based on cases, this has come down a lot. So the good news is that we seem to be heading in the direction of sort of a gradual reopening. Um, and that I think will be helpful over the next two to three months. The bad news is that Shanghai is still kind of a mess and they haven't completely got that. Again, the numbers are going in the right direction there, but um, I think we've still got a few more weeks of, of lockdown there. And I think the bigger worry is that, okay, maybe in the next month or so we'll come out of this wave and they will have solved the problems and we won't have these lockdowns and so forth. But we're likely to get future waves, right? Because now you have the Omicron variant um, that's spreading in, in China, very difficult to control uh, because it just spreads so rapidly. So I think there's a very, very good chance that even if we come out of the current wave within say the next month or so, we'll have another wave in maybe August and September, and then a, another wave a little later in the year, and there will be some kind of lockdowns. Chinese government in general is very scrupulous about trying to keep factories open and trying to make sure that these kinds of lockdowns do not affect production. And they've been pretty successful about that uh, over the last couple of years but it's really, really hard to get this one right. Um, so at some point, it, it seems like they ought to kind of reconsider their strategy and have more of a live with COVID strategy, but they're not there yet. And, and the top level leadership has made it very clear, we are not gonna follow other countries. We are not going to have a live with it strategy. Our strategy is to suppress the pandemic. And if we incur some economic cost for that, we will do so, okay? So it's sort of like a, in the very short term, I think the news from China is probably a little bit better than what you read in the headlines. But if you look on a six to 12 month time horizon, there's clearly some more risk coming down the road from that. Um, so the other thing um, which you've all I'm sure read about is that there was this huge crackdown on Chinese internet companies basically over the last couple of years. This is a chart of all their stock prices, they're down by, you know, 
40 to 80 percent. Um, it's really been a bloodbath. And um, I think the, the relevance of this potentially is, you know, some people say, well, this is the Chinese state squashing the biggest private companies. And so this is going to disincentivize private sector activity everywhere in the economy. And this is going to slow the economy down. Um, I think that's a real risk. Um, but the truth is we haven't seen that yet. And if you look at other pieces of the private sector, notably in manufacturing, they seem to be doing fine and they're not really affected by this. So I think this is something where it, it could go one way or it could go another. We, we could have sort of a, a widespread decline in private uh, sector confidence, or maybe people would just say, well, this is an internet thing and internet companies are special and there are all of these other you know, particular reasons why the government wants to regulate them more tightly, but I'm making my widgets or I'm making my specialty chemicals or whatever, and I'm not like those guys and I'm fine, right? Uh, and that's the message that the Chinese government is trying to put out right now is that there is a, a, a bright line between the internet guys and everyone else. And they're saying, no, 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 we're not against the private sector, but I think the jury is still out on that. So that's a, that's a risk out there. Okay, I want to focus on a couple of longer term structural issues um, because this will lead me into a couple of comments about the Chinese economic development strategy for the next decade or two, which again, I think is important background to have um, if you're trying to operate a, a business in China. So this is a, a picture of the property sector, uh, you know, urban property sales in red, uh, correlated with steel demand, um, you know, and the picture here is very simple. China's had the world's, the biggest property boom, housing boom in world history for the last 20 years. And you can see that the red line, you know, had some ups and downs, but every time there was a down, you had an up very quickly, which took it to a much higher level than it had been before. So the general direction was up and you had some bumps along the way. Right. And this drove just huge increases in demand, not only for steel, but for all industrial metals, uh, for all kinds of industrial materials, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> right now, we're in the midst of a big property crash. Um, and the difference is that we are now at the end of this 20 year boom. So we're not going to have another bounce back to hugely higher level of property sales. We are probably going to stabilize, optimistically, I stabilize at about the level of sales that we had back in 2017, 2018. That's roughly in line with what my team thinks is, you know, underlying demand for housing. And then over the coming years, that is going to start to go down. Um, so for 20 years, China has been relying on the property market as a major end of engine of growth. And now basically it's gone. You're not going to get any more growth from the property sector. And that's a huge transformation. So in order to sustain high growth in the future, uh, China is going to have to you know, move beyond the, the property sector and find something else. Um, and as they do this, they have to watch out a, a, about leverage, right? And again, this is a, a situation where you will often see comments in the uh, financial media about China's debt crisis or, you know, potential for a financial crisis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a lot of this is overheated. 
for various reasons, I don't think China is on the precipice of a financial crisis, but they do have a very high debt level and this constrains their options going forward. So what I've done here is just said, you know, on the x-axis, this is how rich you are. This is your per capita GDP, right? So as you go from left to right, you get richer and the emerging economies are circled in blue and the essentially the developed, the big developed economies are over here in black. And then on this side, we have a measure of debt, which is total you know, credit outstanding uh, to GDP. And so what you can see is China clearly, in terms of its income, is a developing country, right? They're not a fully developed country yet. But in terms of their debt level, it's about the same as a rich country. So essentially what China wants to do over the course of the next 10, 20 years is move this dot to the right on the income scale. So it becomes you know, a developed rich country, but they do not want the debt to move up. The do they don't know, do not want the dot to move up on the debt scale. And that is tricky because um, they've increased their debt quite a lot in the last few years. So as they look for a new growth model, not only do they have to find a new source of growth, but they have to get that growth, growth with a lot less debt than they have in the past. And so that makes the, the job doubly difficult. So what's the plan? Well, the plan is here, uh, essentially. So the, uh, Xi Jinping and his colleagues say, okay, yeah, we get it. We're not gonna get any more um, you know, growth out of capital spending in the property sector and so forth. And we have to be very careful about debt. We can't let that rise anymore. And we have to deal with the fact that the US government doesn't like us anymore and we're dealing with a much more hostile international environment. Um, so what do we do? Well, two things uh, that uh, you do, you have a, a sort of a political strategy for governing the country and then you have an economic strategy for development. And the political strategy is more communist party control, more consistency of regulation, more compliance with the rules. Some people think this is a good thing because there was a lot of kind of wild west activity and you know rule breaking and so forth. And so, oh, if we have more consistent rules and regulations that are more consistently enforced, that's a good thing. On the other hand, if you have the communist party, you know, sort of mucking around and telling everyone what to do all the time, that's not such a good thing. So there's a question about is this sort of more disciplined government governance strategy is this a necessary step on the way to a kind of a more modern state? Or is it just excessive repression by a paranoid authoritarian government? And I think there are elements of both in it, right? Uh, so some of this stuff is good and necessary, and some of it is, is overreach. And it's hard to know exactly what the balance is. I think at the moment, people think that the balance is much too much on um, tilted towards Communist Party interference and that it's really getting in the way of economic growth. Uh, but they could adjust that later on. So that's the political strategy. The economic strategy is what I sometimes call the venture capitalist state. And basically what this means is the government has said, okay, we're not gonna make our economy grow by the property sector and infrastructure and you know the traditional kinds of exports that we've had. We're gonna make it a high tech economy. So we're gonna identify 20 or so high tech sectors. We're gonna put in some government money, but then we're gonna encourage companies and capital markets, both in China and elsewhere, 
to throw money into these sectors as well. And so then we will develop all of these new high-tech sectors. These will be incredibly productive. Uh, and that's where our future growth will come from. And as the state, we're like a giant VC fund. We will identify the investment opportunities. We'll bring in a lot of limited partners to you know, help these companies grow. And then we'll let the market sort out you know, who are the winners and who are the losers. Um, and you know, we'll make some bad bets along the way, but we'll make enough good bets that we'll de develop you know, half a dozen really competitive new industries that will employ a lot of people and pay them high wages and um, you know, give us a lot of economic growth. Um, and you know, I think there are a lot of questions about that. If any country is gonna pull this off, it would be China. Um, but I think the basic question people have is, you know, investment in technology doesn't automatically translate into economic growth and productivity unless you also have all the market institutions that make people more efficient and, you know, take the inefficient people out of the market. Um, and it's not clear that China really has that market infrastructure, you know, fully developed and or that it's willing to. Right, because they they want to support a lot of state enterprises. They want to keep out some of the foreign competition. Um, so they're not really 100% committed to the to sort of the market elements that would make this strategy work. Um, but they have a lot of things going for them, um, and um, you know I think we have to take that that uh, strategy seriously. Okay, so let me um, now boil all of this down um, and say, you know, what might this mean for multinationals? And actually, maybe I will go back to this. I have this slide on. So I've set up two scenarios for, you know, sort of a good scenario and a bad scenario of this economic development strategy. What if this succeeds, right? Well, if it succeeds, then I think China winds up looking a lot like Germany, except they're run by a communist party. Right, which is kind of weird to think about, but you know they'll be very industrially powerful. They'll have a lot of competitive high-tech industries. They'll grow pretty fast, probably. Communist Party will have a lot of legitimacy because people will say, "Oh, this is working quite well." Uh, it will be great for China, and I think really problematic for the rest of the world uh, because China will be much more directly competitive with what other people do. I think the cost of failure is not that the system collapses, but that China winds up looking a lot more like Japan wound up looking in the nineteen. 90s with a lot of, you know, some very good industries, but then a lot of very non-competitive ones, a lot of debt, pretty low productivity growth, and kind of like a, a, a stagnant uh, equilibrium with with some bright spots in it. Um, so the, I think that's sort of like the extreme possible outcomes. The truth is likely to be in the middle. Okay, so let me just conclude with a few comments about what all of this stuff means if you're looking at this from the standpoint of an MNC operating in China. Uh, and the background here is, I, I look at sort of multinationals in aggregate as a, as a group. So I, I don't spend a lot of time looking at them industry by industry. So I'll be curious about your feedback about what things look like from your industry. But if you look at them as a whole, um, why is it that multinationals are so interested in China? Well, 
first and foremost, it is a very large and very fast growing market across a very wide range of product and service segments. And there just are no substitutes. It is just like much bigger and much faster growing than any comparable market uh, in the world for many things. So that's a huge thing. Second, uh, tremendously efficient production base. So if you're producing either for consumption within China or for export, uh, you really can't beat China's combination of a very diverse skilled workforce that's increasingly able to provide R&D talent and stuff like that, management, finance, et cetera, uh, and really uh, first-class infrastructure. And yeah, you can talk about, well, we could move to Indonesia or Vietnam or India or whatever, but the reality is the package, the production package that you get in China is just so much better than any other uh, country in the world uh, that there isn't really a good substitute for it. Um, third, uh, increasingly China is an innovation uh, hub. It's a place where innovation happens because there is all of this talent because you've got a lot of competition from global companies there. Uh, and because if you have a new idea, you can scale things up very quickly. And if you don't believe me, just ask Elon Musk, right? So he made a very big bet on uh, electric cars in China, which I think has paid off pretty well for him. Uh, and the reason he did was like, if I want to sell a lot of electric cars and really scale up my technology and develop rap rapidly, where can I do that? China really is the is the is the top answer, right? Um, so if you want to be at the global frontier of innovation, you kind of have to you know have some kind of a, a presence in China. Uh, and then if you look at some of the survey data, you can see this is for U.S. firms. Seventy-five percent of them that have that already have a presence in China, they say it's still a top pri priority. The profitability typically is at or above global averages. And on a short-term horizon, they have a lot of concerns, but on a five-year horizon, you know, 70% of US firms that operate there are pretty optimistic about the, the prospects there. So there's a lot of reasons to be there. Uh, the problems are, <clears throat> as we know, number one, there's a lot of political pressure now you know, for companies to invest less there. Short term, you have a lot of these problems created by COVID restrictions and by this more intrusive government. Uh, and then sort of structurally, there are concerns that China has a more activist in industrial policy. They're more protectionist. They're trying to support domestic firms. And they're really getting very um, uh, tough about uh, controlling data flows. And that Cross-border data flows are an increasingly large part of you know, every business's operations. And uh, if, if China is going to block those or, or create problems, that's, that makes it difficult. So there are a lot of hurdles. Um, and so the question is, how do you balance the incentives to be there with all of these problems that you're facing? So I've listed a few here. Um, one is, you know, if you're in the electronics sphere, and I, I this is literally a quote from a major electronics company that I talked to uh, in China last December. I said, look, there are all these problems. The U.S. government wants you to get out. You know, couldn't you just like move to Vietnam or or, or wherever? And the guy said, you know, our plan V for China is China. We just, for all of these reasons at the top of the slide, there is no alternative. So we're just gonna keep doing what we're doing and do our best to manage these problems. And for some sectors, that is, is appropriate. I think what you see more frequently now is what you could call the China plus one strategy, which is like, okay, China's a huge market. We're not gonna abandon it. We have to keep the capacity there uh, to serve the China market. But if we wanna serve other markets, which we have historically been doing from China, uh, maybe we don't do that. And the next factory we build somewhere else, whether it's in the US, 
or another Asian country. Uh, we diversify our bets. So our China operations are for China, uh, but our global operations are increasingly diversified among other locations. And I, I think this is really probably the, the, the major strategy that most companies have. A, a third one though, that's worth mentioning is that if you look at some of the, the impact of the technology sanctions um, that have come down from the US government and China, what this has encouraged some firms to do, especially in the technology space is, oh, if I produce in the US and try to export to China, you're gonna block the export. So I'm gonna produce more in China because then you can't block me from selling it. So perversely, these efforts to decouple the US and China in some cases have had the reverse impact and incentivize companies to put more emphasis on production within, within China because then that's not subject to US export controls or sanctions, right? Um, so, and then there are probably, you know, various other variations on all of these, but I think that gives you, I think, kind of the flavor of the, the, the central fact that, you know, for the last 30 years, uh, multinationals have had, you know, a, a fairly comfortable world in the sense that they could choose to put manufacturing facilities anywhere in the world based more or less on efficiency concerns. And they didn't have a lot of problems other than the operational problems of managing those, those things, right? Now they have those operational problems, plus they have all of the political pressure that's coming from their home countries, but also protectionist political pressure that's coming from within China. And so they have another layer that they have to manage on top of the operational efficiency layer. And that makes it more complicated. Uh, and I think with that, I've kind of overrun my time and I, I do wanna make sure that we have some time for discussions. Um, I will stop there and I will take down my slides and uh, we can open it up for questions. Um, so do people just wanna raise their hands maybe and we can. Yeah, so if people raise their hand, I will give them the option to unmute or you can type questions in the chat and I can read them aloud. <clears throat> All right, not everybody at once now. Okay, well, Amelia, I know you were an active participant in our class discussion, so you must have a question or two left over that you could kick us off with. Okay, so in terms of the lockdowns, I know we talked about um, how they've kind of affected GDP and how you think China will move right, toward right. a more living with COVID or that they ought to. Um, for the time being, what do you think the implications of this Shanghai lockdown will be? How far extending do you think it'll be? This is something definitely yeah. affecting the chemical industry. The Shanghai port is right. major for us. So right. from that, yeah, I what think, do you? Yeah, I think there, there are essentially two dimensions that you need to look at this. Uh, one is just like the port infrastructure. Does stuff unable to get into or out of the port, whether it's Shanghai or Ningbo or, or wherever? Um, and that is, you know, I think a problem. I think the other issue is that the Shanghai region is a very important producer of sort of industrial goods intermediates for people further down the, the chain. And people in the automotive and electric uh, and electronic sectors in particular said, look, if Shanghai remains shut, my factory is somewhere else a thousand miles away, but it won't be able to keep operating because we can't get the goods, that, the intermediate goods that we need 
from Shanghai, right? And so you can think about that. So for example, you might be a specialty camel company whose main uh, uh, customer base is the auto sector in China. And you might be selling to auto companies all over the country. And those auto companies might be slowing down their production because they can't get some other part that's coming out of China. So you could face a knock-on effect uh, in terms of the demand from your you know, domestic consumers because of the, these log jams you know, at other parts of, the part, uh, parts of the supply chain, right? So the risks there, I think, are pretty material. Now, the government is, is definitely aware of this and they are really, really anxious to get Shanghai fully back online. And they seem to be, you know, heading in the right direction. So we're cautiously optimistic that in the next few weeks, they'll be able to get things back, you know, closer to normal. Um, but if they don't, then you've got these problems both at the ports and in your customer base, you know, within Shanghai and then potentially with your customer base outside of Shanghai as well. So there's a lot of a lot of potential downside. And, and just to you know, follow up on the point that I made earlier, the hope is that if they get few further waves later this year, they'll deal with them the way Shenzhen did, which is that they identified the cases very quickly. They did spot lockdowns here or there, and they basically got, got the city up and running again in a few weeks, right? With no major disruptions. We have to hope that any future waves are gonna look more like Shenzhen did than like Shanghai did, or otherwise, I think a lot of people are in big trouble. So I see a question here, yep. So I'm gonna just let Jay Rhodes, who has her hand up, um, you can unmute and ask your question. Yeah, hi, thanks. Thanks, Amelia, appreciate it. Uh, Arthur, my name is Jonathan Rhodes. I work for uh, Barents. We're a, a global specialty chemical distributor and, and I lead one of our businesses and, and our particular business, um, you know, China is a, 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 an, important, an important source for right. uh, some of our products. And so, uh, first of all, tremendous coverage of this topic. Really, really appreciate it. I think, uh, you know, this is a really exhaustive and uh, educational perspective. And so, number one, I just want to say thank you, because, I, I, you know, your, your, your perspective is, is really, really welcomed and appreciated. Um, our question, one of the things that, that we talk about a lot internally when we um, spend time thinking about, hey, what's our perspective on China and and, and where do we see the, the, the supply challenges coming from, is, is we, we, we tend to take a deep look at, um, if you will, ultimately kind of the, the, the income disparity that's existing yep. in China from, you know, I guess at, at the highest level, you know, you've got 200 or 250 million people that are living in a, a, a pretty good sort of swath of the economic pie. And then you've got, you know, nominally a billion people that really aren't enjoying nearly the right. level of the fruits of that of that of that yep. process. And so one of the questions that, that, that we think about a lot is, you know, how does China's economic plans and, and I and I love the way you've laid this out yep. that, you know, that the horse related to housing is probably yep. starting to run out. Yep. And 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 we see it the same way. And and so um, when we think about this shift to technology, and technology yep. ultimately being the bearer of the gross domestic product growth that's going to yep. take those other billion people from sort of where they're yep. living and, and moving yep. them up. Um, our concern with that is like, how rapidly is that really going to, to happen? Because yep. 
Um, you know, we view that we kind of have a limited window for that to occur. Yeah. Yep. And uh, just from a social unrest sort yep. of perspective. Yep. And, 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 and candidly sure. technology yeah. is great, but like, yeah, how fast is that yeah. going to work? So I'd love yeah, you to comment right. on that. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So uh, you raised an interesting point there. I, you know, I think, um, so on the one hand, I think what you've highlighted is that although China has had enormous growth, in fact, growth has been pretty widely um, uh, distributed. Uh, China has really taken huge numbers of people out of absolute poverty, you know, Average living standards there, even for you know pretty normal people, are so much higher than they were um, a couple decades ago. Uh, tremendous achievement, but there's still a lot to be done. So there's a lot of potential growth to be had by raising incomes further. So that's the, sort of the opportunity set. Um, and and it's clear also that the government they have a slogan called common prosperity, which is they don't want that growth to, in future to be too unequal. So they want all the votes to rise uh, more so than in the past. So there is a, a stress on making the growth more equal. Um, I think you're right. The, the problem with this sort of technology focused, production focused strategy is I don't think it gets you the kind of growth that they're talking about. You need to have a strategy that is much more consumer facing um, and um, you know, really just incentivizes private companies to cater to consumer demand, and that becomes a self-sustaining engine of, of growth and, you know, income uh, increase. And they don't really have that, right? So I think you're right to point out that there's a little bit of contradiction between the stated aims of the government, which are to have a lot of growth and to spread it very equally, and this obsession with high tech. Um, so I, I noticed that there are a few questions in the chat, and so Amelia, maybe I'll just go through those, uh, okay. if you don't mind. Yeah, there's one specifically I think would be really valuable to our uh, yeah. community just because this is something we actually talked about in class as well. It's from Joan Mintz. Yes, What's that was. Your... I... Okay, perfect. Yeah. Do you want I me to read it? To... I'll, I'll read it. Yeah, okay. that was the one that I had uh, honed in on as well. So the question is, what's your perspective on other actions by China that have impacted the chemical industry, Blue Skies Initiative, electricity restrictions, and how are these likely to change in the next few years? Great question. Um, and... <clears throat> There's kind of a push and pull here. So um, I, I look at this largely through a, a decarbonization uh, lens because that's kind of the single biggest sort of policy set that's operating here. But it, it, it is related to things like uh, regulation of the power sector and environmental regulation very tightly. And the basic point is that although China has attracted a lot of uh, criticism, rightly, for being a major CO2 emitter and for not being really aggressive in its long-term plans to decarbonize. If you look at, at, their, at what they've, their commitments, they're actually pretty aggressive. You know? And I think the difference between China's uh, carbon decarbonization promises and other countries is other countries are happy to promise things that they know that they could never possibly achieve and say, well, I'll be dead in 30 years, so no one will call me out on, on, on how I made this you know, absurd promise. The Chinese actually, when they promise something, that's a real commitment. So their commitments are less, but I think they're more credible. So you know, up until you know, the end of last year, we were focusing a lot of this uh, energy on trying to figure out what they were gonna do there. Uh, and they were being pretty aggressive at doing things like closing down coal-fired power plants and really trying to push towards renewable sources of en energy. And I think the reasons for this are, number one, they do recognize that there's some bad externalities from climate change 
heading their way, rising sea levels. They've got a lot of people on the coast, um, reduced water flow from the Himalayas, uh, et cetera. Um, so they want to deal with that. There are also some, uh, uh, you know, direct environmental things. You know, the things that cause CO2 also cause local air pollution, mainly burning coal. This is becoming a huge issue for the Chinese middle class. So in order for the Communist Party to sustain itself, they really need to deal with that issue. So that's become a bigger. But I think these are less important than two other uh, objectives. One is industrial policy. They see an opportunity for Chinese companies to get in on the ground floor of the high-tech green energy industries of the future, whether it be batteries or electric cars or wind or solar or whatever. So they're really, or hydrogen, they're really pushing because they see a payoff in terms of creating, you know, globally competitive high-tech companies that are in the green space, right? Uh, the other is national security. If you rely on renewable energy, renewable energy by definition is locally sourced, right? You don't have to import it. You don't have to have a pipeline or a ship bring it to you. They're very dependent on imported oil and gas. And some of that comes from places that are dangerous or where the US Navy can you know, turn it off if they, if they want to. So from a national security standpoint, they want to become more reliant on renewable sources. So on a long-term basis, I think they have a very strong, very credible commitment to a, a greener, uh, less carbon intensive uh, energy and industrial mix. And they were pushing very hard on that. But this runs up against certain economic realities. And what we saw last year was that they had been so aggressive at cutting down, cutting back on the coal-fired power plants that they literally did not have enough power to keep industries running. And they were facing serious shortages. So they've had to backtrack on that, right? Um, and you can see similar back and forth in the environmental regulation. So I think the generalization I would make is it's a push and pull. Um, they're always going to prioritize short-term growth and stabilization over the long-term environmental or decarbonization agendas. But those long-term agendas are real and they are gonna come back. So as soon as we get into a place where the economy is more stable, uh, maybe global energy prices have come down a little bit um, and they don't have to worry so much as they do now about just keeping growth stable. I think we're gonna be right back to a much more aggressive stance on environmental and decarbonization regulation. And we're gonna, it's gonna, you know, I think that's a fact of life that you're gonna have to deal with uh, for decades um, uh, in China. So it's, you know, it goes back and forth, but the long-term um, uh, uh, um, trajectory is towards, I think, stricter regulation. Um, so we have a, a couple of other um, <clears throat> questions in the chat, which, we will address, I know we're very close to the top of the hour, um, so I'll try and do this quickly. Um, so there's a question about the chip shortage uh, and how China's gonna deal with it. I, I, I can't talk about the, the relationship between chips and the chemical industry specifically because I don't have that knowledge. Um, I think the short answer here is that China is, is investing a huge amount in creating a semiconductor capacity. And a lot of this is gonna come online in the next several years. This will be focused in memory and in the sort of prior generation analog chips that go into like Internet of Things um, applications. We do not see any ability for them really to um, 
uh, become effective producers of the, the highest end chips. But I think what we're mainly, and those mainly go into mobile phones and things like that. But in terms of industrial use chips, I think over the period of the next few years, we're going to see massive, massive investments in China and in other countries. And we're probably going to be facing a glut of chips, I would say, on a three to five year time horizon. Exactly the opposite problem that we've had now, because everyone is just pouring huge amounts of money into that. Um, uh, tariffs, uh, what I think the odds are that the China tariffs would be repealed pretty close to zero. Both parties uh, agree that they are necessary. There may be some wider exclusion policy, um, and maybe the Biden administration will conclude that inflation is just such a big, huge problem that they have to take the tariffs off. But frankly, I haven't really seen any evidence of that. So I would say the tariffs stay, and the relief that you will get is not through the tariffs being through repealed, but through a case-by-case -case exclusion process. Um, and so then you just have to look at your industry and what are the, you know, what kind of lobbying heft do you have to get the, the exclusion for the tariffs that, that uh, affect you particularly. Um, and then uh, I think finally the question is, um, um, you know, what, whose business imperatives do the current US policy serves? Is it old economy versus new economy, financial industry versus manufacturing? I think this is really more of a <clears throat> political than an economic question. Um, I think what you have here is essentially we've, and we've seen this globally, a populist wave that said the economic system of the last 40 years did not sufficiently benefit workers, ordinary people, whatever. Uh, and so we need uh, <clears throat> economic policies that are much, much more focused on domestic investment um, regardless of what the industry are. So it's it's more of a political decision that we want to have more investment domestically and we would have more we want to have more policies that are specifically targeted on workers um, and so and middle class people if you will than on the interests of companies. I don't I don't really see it as a this industry versus that industry um, competition. I see it as a kind of a um, inward looking versus internationalist looking uh, approach. Um, I think clearly the industries that are gonna benefit, if you just look at the legislation that's in Congress, now the USICA uh, Act from the Senate and the Competes Act from the House, just go through the list of those industries that are up for subsidies, very high tech oriented, uh, semiconductors principally, um, also a lot of stuff in the Senate bill on uh, uh, clean energy, sorry, in the House bill on clean energy. Um, and that I think reflects uh, the priorities of the current Democratic majority. If we get a shift, as we probably will, um, then you could start to see other industries um, kind of reap the benefits of that um, in, you know, in the coming years. Uh, so we're now past the hour. So I'll leave it back to you, Amelia and Kylie to, you know, wrap things up. Thank you so much, Arthur. That was uh, so informative. I know our community has really appreciated that. Um, just so as we wrap up, I will be sending out the recording and the slides that Arthur's going to provide me on May 16th. So look out for those. They'll also be posted on our LinkedIn. Recording will go out on our Vimeo as well. Um, I want to thank again our speaker, Arthur Krober, and our sponsor, Mission Chemical. And thank you all for joining us today. See you soon.